This is Forest Fireside Chats, a podcast produced by Elsa Soderstrom and hosted by Cora Martin, with special support from Emma Waters and Abigail Miller. Keep listening to get a new outlook on U.S. environmentalism that we hope will expand, uplift, and brighten the movement towards sustainability. This is Cora Martin with another episode of Forest Fireside Chats. As always, thank you so much for listening. I am super excited about today's episode. It kind of came together so perfectly. My producer, Elsa Soderstrom, was put in contact with Kevin Bell, who used to work for public employees for environmental responsibility. And I didn't know much about him or his work, only what I'd read for Uh, the story we're going to kind of talk about today. But he ended up being such an excellent guest, such an insightful person to have on the podcast. And it made me kind of excited about all of the future episodes and all of the people that I'm going to get to meet and speak with and share with you all. I swear the people working in this field are some of the most passionate, brightest, most dedicated people I've ever met already. And it's only been now about five or six months of this. Yeah, so obviously I'm very excited as I've immediately started talking about our interviewee of today. But I want to quickly say Happy New Year. This has been, it's been the first month of 2023. I have already had a really good year. I went to the AFC Championship game in Kansas City, my hometown, last weekend. And it was arguably the best day of my entire life. My dad took me and we had the greatest time together. Yeah, other than that, I've just been starting the semester up again. I'm doing a master's in data science. I don't know if I've ever said that on the podcast before. So classes have been good. I really just have such a great feeling about 2023. I hope everyone feels the same. I know with all of the extreme weather we've been experiencing. It hasn't been perfect. Florida, California, even the polar vortex that ripped through the entire country has put the United States on edge a bit. But yeah, I'm trying to think positively about the year and this project obviously allows me to do that every month. I I really enjoy doing this. I know it's not perfect, but the creative process of making these episodes is exciting to me and it's fun to get to collaborate with some of my best friends they're the best people ever I thank them as often as I can for the incredible work they do for FFC and I hope people recognize that it's not just me making these episodes it's an entire team of people who I respect and love so much That was a lot of talking about me. Let's get into the episode. I am so excited. I had, again, as I said, I had such a great conversation with Kevin. I'm going to tell you all a little bit about him. He is now a legal consultant at Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, PEER, and he has worked at PEER for the past four and a half years. He received a BA in American Politics and Government from Willamette University before going on to get a JD at New York University School of Law. As a service organization, PEER protects public employees who protect our environment. 
They provide pro bono support and defense to those who seek a higher standard of, of environmental ethics and scientific integrity within their agencies and shine light on improper or illegal government actions. Through his work, improper or illegal government actions are publicized and environmental laws and regulations are strengthened. This past spring, in a satisfactory end to Kevin's three-plus-year battle, the United Nations declared a ban on a harmful space propellant. I was very honored to talk to Kevin about what that victory was all about, how it came to be for our January episode of Forced Fireside Chats. Let's get into the episode so you all can hear from Kevin. I hope you enjoy. Kevin, thank you so much for being here. Where I'm really excited to jump into the story, but could you first tell us a little bit about Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility? Sure. Well, off the top, I suppose I should clarify that you know when I became a, a legal consultant after I was a staff counsel, that was actually sort of a, a euphemistic way of saying that I got laid off by the office, and I am now just performing a handful of ancillary duties that you know nobody else was working on, or I was the only person who had to do sort of on an hourly rate. So uh, I, I no longer speak for the organization. I'm happy to tell you all about my experiences there. But I suppose I should clarify that I am not speaking on behalf of Pure anymore, as I'm not even allowed to. That's, I guess, sort of the the caveats. As for, you know, what is Pure? What does it do? I think that you described it fairly well. Pure is an organization that has, in the time that I was there, helped dozens of employees that came to us with all sorts of concerns across all sorts of different environmental aspects of basically everything the government touches. So... That's everything from you know improper performance of environmental impact statements or people being ordered to you know remove certain harms or certain disclosures of threats that would be politically inconvenient to a, a middle manager or under the Trump administration political leadership of an agency that just didn't want to acknowledge the existence of climate change or something. You know, the things that ordinary day-to-day government employees do that impact the way that the federal government's operations interact with the environment. And, you know, a lot of times federal managers, federal leadership can find the consideration of environmental concerns inconvenient or not in accordance with the agency's mission. And so they sideline those and they'll often punish or retaliate against federal employees for, you know, bringing up those problems. And so whenever they do, they came to peer. And uh, when I was there, I would help them. In addition to uh, working directly with government employees, I also managed a fairly extensive FOIA docket. That's the Freedom of Information Act, where we would request information from government, sometimes in support of the whistleblowers who came to us, sometimes of our own ends to sort of advance a handful of programs that we were running at the time. Yeah, we we sued the government a lot. And yeah, it was a fun time. I have nothing but love for the office, and I really enjoyed my time there, even if I now obviously have some disputes with management. Well, we thank you for talking on the podcast about your time at Pier, despite that very unfortunate situation. So let's jump back to 2018. You got a call from a whistleblower who had concerns about a satellite thruster that used mercury, which is a highly toxic liquid metal, as a propellant. Can you tell us about why this was an issue and your initial reaction upon hearing it? Well, this was fairly early in my time at Pure, 
I only started in August of 2018, and I first heard from the whistleblower maybe a month or two thereafter. And it was a pretty wild phone call. I had only just gotten used to the concept of having people call me to tell me about any number of problems. And, you know, this being one of my first calls, I think that I was a little bit more open to hearing about anything than a lot of the folks handling intakes at maybe other environmental organizations were because the whistleblower, you know, they, they called up the office, they got our main line, it got transferred to me. And, you know, they said, hi, I, I'm an engineer and I am aware of uh, this potentially massive environmental threat where the company that is designing this product which is a fairly standard, what's called a Hall effect thruster that you know it uses electric ionization. And I'm not a chemist or a scientist, so you know, forgive me if I get this wrong. But you know, basically, they would ionize individual molecules of mercury and then spin them up really fast in a little chamber and then shoot it out the back of a satellite, and that makes it change direction. And that's the way that most of these things work. But in this case, he said that they were working with mercury and on potentially so much of a scale that it could be responsible for more than doubling like all of North America's total mercury emissions into the atmosphere. And that he wanted to tell somebody about this. And, you know, this is unusual for Pure for a couple of reasons. I mean, number one, because I don't think that environmental space law is even really that much of a concept. Like in the couple of years since then, I think it has become more so one. But at the time, mercury emissions into outer space was not exactly an environmental concern. So, you know, it was a new field for us to look at that way. And then also, you know, this is an engineer at a, a private Silicon Valley startup company who is sort of the exact opposite of a public employee and therefore very much outside the bounds of the sort of people that Peer typically helps. You know, I basically listened without saying that much for the entire probably 45 minutes of the call. And yeah, he told me that he had brought the same issue to a handful of other environmental groups that had listened to him and either didn't believe it or had him send an email to an intake line that never got responded to, or, you know, for one reason or another sort of didn't go along with it. And I think he was just going through the phone book of everybody who fell under environmental. And yeah, I happened to be the person that decided to go along with it. Wow, that's pretty incredible. Can I quickly ask, what do you think it was about you or this person that made you believe it and others didn't? You know, there are a lot of cranks that sort of call, particularly whistleblower organizations and, you know, environmental organizations as well. People who have concerns that, you know, their neighbor is doing something and they'll call us and it's like, well, I'm sorry, I can't help you with your dispute with your neighbor. Or, you know, they have an idea that there's a government conspiracy to spy on their family with satellites because they went to a public meeting about a proposed mine sighting or something. And it's like, I, you know, I suppose it's possible, but I doubt that that's actually happening. Uh, and so... You know, as time went on at Pure, I think that uh, I, as well as a lot of other people, like you develop more of a filter. Like I said, this is fairly like new in my career. So I guess, number one, I wasn't really thinking about filtering for that. And even if I were, I still think that I probably would have taken the case just because on the phone, the whistleblower just had a real credibility to his voice. He had a degree of expertise and gravitas that, you know, certain people it just comes through with. And this was one of those people. Everything that he talked about was very scientific. He had previously made all of the same arguments that he made to us to other folks within his organization. And so as a result, he had all the scientific arguments ready to go. He was able to explain it in very concise terms. And as such, it, yeah, it just felt like a pretty, I mean, not an obvious case, certainly, but definitely one that was meritorious. 
And uh, I, I took it to our executive director at the time, Jeff Ruck, who agreed that, yeah, while he was definitely not a public employee, if we're the only people looking at it, then yeah, we should probably do something. So we have known for a long time that mercury exposure is a major issue for environmental health, environmental justice. In fact, the Minamata Convention on Mercury, established in 2013, created an international treaty designed to protect human health and the environment from anthropogenic emissions and releases of mercury. So with all of this knowledge, how was it possible that the use of mercury and these thrusters was considered legal? Okay, so I'll preface this by saying I'm not an international lawyer and I'm not an expert on the Minamata Convention by any means. I don't think I'd even heard of it until after I started working on this case. But the convention, as many such environmental treaties, is one that it doesn't say, you know, mercury is banned for all uses except these specific ones. It says mercury is banned for these specific uses. So it lays out you know, certain ways that mercury is not allowed to be used, like, you know, individual processes and, you know, aspects of gold mining, I think is one of them, you know, the things that you're not allowed to use mercury for and basically leaves the rest open. So it identifies problems after they exist and then says you're not allowed to do that anymore. But because I suppose there are a, a great number of potential uses for mercury that are less environmentally harmful or the economic harm of banning it would outweigh the environmental benefit or for whatever political reason, they simply weren't able to get a ban in place. Yeah, and unless it was on the pre-existing list of things you weren't allowed to use mercury for, you're still allowed to use mercury for it. So while there was a, a fairly extensive international import-export regime and a you know method of tracking different shipments of it and inventories around the world, it is still a substance that is allowed to be used as long as it's not for one of the things that's on the list. So the ultimate victory here was getting satellite thruster propellants added to the list. So how did you and Peer eventually get this issue out there? Did you publish your own research or inform the media? Can you kind of walk us through the process of letting people know about this potentially extreme environmental risk? Sure. Uh, so one of the things that I learned fairly early on the job is that if you just go to media with a whistleblower's report of something, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But more often than not, what people want to report on is a story about somebody doing something. So we had to figure out some sort of a legal action that we could take with this information, that there were potentially you know, thousands of tons of mercury being emitted into the atmosphere from outer space, which is not something that, like I said earlier, there's much of a legal framework for. So as a law office, we're somewhat limited in the types of acts that we can do. You know, We don't lobby Congress. We, we didn't when I was there do a whole lot of specific lobbying of Congress or agencies. I mean, there's a little bit, like if they were doing an investigation for one of our clients, we'd talk to committee staff. But yeah, we had to figure out some sort of an angle for you know, what's a legal hook on this. So the Clean Air Act isn't going to help you. Like There are rules about mercury emissions, but they're all specifically from ground sources. I mean, the entire Clean Air Act is dedicated to ground sources of emissions, and I guess I assume airplanes, but I'll be honest, I'm not totally sure. But there is nothing in the, you know, the U.S. environmental statute inventory that handles you know, emissions going into the atmosphere from outer space. So the best hook that we had was the statute called the National Environmental Policy Act. The National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, was a statute that was one of the very earliest of the environmental statutes passed. And it basically was a 
order to all of the federal government, all the agencies therein, to before taking any action that might have an effect on the environment of a certain threshold size, uh, I think it's like significant or substantial effect on the environment, you have to fully explore what all the environmental consequences of that action would be. So that has to be a part of the decision-making process is looking at these environmental consequences. You know, it originally had very lofty ideals of, uh, oh, we're going to make the even the Department of Defense think about what the environmental consequences would be of, you know, taking some sort of a, a military-related action. And maybe that'll change the way they think about stuff. It never ended up actually changing the way that a lot of federal managers think about making federal actions because typically agency mission comes first. Uh, and many of the employees we represented were NEPA analysts who said that they were being ignored by their management. And it sort of became a, a box checking exercise where you have to basically list out and itemize what all the environmental impacts would be. So satellite launches have to happen into space and they get approved by a couple of different federal agencies and for communication satellites, which the whistleblower informed us that this is the most likely use was for these mega constellations of communication satellites. Think like uh, the, the SpaceX Starlink thing where they have all these little geosynchronous satellites in orbit. You know, those involve thousands of satellites, each one of which might have anywhere between like five and 20 kilograms of thruster propellant on board. And, you know, when you multiply that by 10,000 satellites in a mega constellation, you get a poten potentially a whole lot of emissions. And the agency that covers that is the Federal Communications Commission, which, you know, you wouldn't really think that the FCC is the space agency, but in many ways they are. FAA handles the launch vehicles themselves, but FCC handles the payload. So they have to do a review and they have a docket for every launch that will happen. So I, and this took a couple of weeks of research to sort of figure out the whole contour of, but I found a docket that was then currently open for the approval of, I think it was a SpaceX constellation. It might've been OneWeb or there are a couple of companies that were doing this at the time. So yeah, I, I opened up the FCC dockets and I found the next mega constellation approval that was taking place that had some comments on it. And unsolicited, without any expertise in the way that the FCC comment process works, I threw together uh, a quick, I think it was probably like 15 page comment, basically encapsulating all the scientific findings that the whistleblower had come to us with and some of my own legal gloss of why the National Environmental Policy Act required them to consider this because it was a foreseeable environmental consequence of a significant nature and that they were not considering the potential environmental consequences of well, Mercury was obviously the one that we were talking about, but I made the argument that they should be considering the environmental consequences of you know, every aspect of this. And at the time, FCC had a policy which stated that they would only do a, a review for the ground-based, what are called rectenna sites, which are like humongous antennas that receive high-frequency radiation. And again, if there are any scientists or science people listening to this, they're going to laugh at me. But yeah, any place basically that gets like a whole lot of like microwave radiation from communication satellites, they'll do a NEPA review for, but not anything else. All we really did is drop the comment on the FCC docket, which to my knowledge, FCC never did anything with. It did have some other downstream consequences. I mean, first of all, we put out a press release about the comment that we made, and it did get covered by a couple of folks. So Ben Elgin at uh, Bloomberg did a, a very good story about it that I think it actually made the cover. And I enjoyed that quite a bit. And it's, you know, I, I think got the 
the question across really well. And I got a little bit of follow on coverage from, you know, some of the industry and like trade magazines. And there was a law student who uh, ended up writing an article about the environmental impacts of space and sort of continued to expand this new doctrine. To my knowledge, I, I guess I'm the first person that ever argued that NEPA should be applied to outer space. So, you know, if that's the feather in my hat for the, the early part of my career, then I'll take it. The United Nations Minamata Convention actually passed an amendment to the treaty that included space in the list of areas in which mercury use would be banned. And I think there's a direct line between Kevin's work and that decision from the United Nations to ban the use of mercury in space. So I, I'm wondering, how did that feel to know that you had that big of an impact? And where were you when you first found out about the UN ban? So, you know, I hadn't really thought too much about the case other than the fact that, you know, we made sure that the whistleblower was safe and he, you know, ended up getting put in touch with a, a group of international environmental folks, including a bunch of scientists who were able to do peer review of the math and the engineering and science that he put together, sort of demonstrating that, you know, mercury, because it's such a heavy element, does end up achieving turbo pause and falling back into the atmosphere. It doesn't just jet off into space, which is what the company had sort of envisioned for the, the thruster propellant. But, you know, unfortunately, you know, the, the same things that make it an attractive thruster propellant, uh, high atomic weight, and the fact that it doesn't combust or react with uh, a whole lot else, like in a satellite situation, and that it stays liquid at the right temperatures, uh, all of those things made it uh, particularly dangerous, environmentally speaking, because, you know, like I said, it would fall back down, They did, and they were able to prove all that. So, um, you know, that was something that was going on. And then we also handed it off to this guy named Michael Bender, who's the director of the Mercury Policy Project and the international coordinator for the Zero Mercury Working Group. And he was a really great guy. And he honestly was the person who was responsible for all of the international stuff getting done. He had, for the couple of years before that, I guess, been sort of quietly lobbying a, a couple of the delegations that were going to the Minamata Convention. And I don't want to, I guess, talk too much about that because I don't know how much of it is public. But, you know, ultimately, he was able to convince uh, a number of the right people in the right places that this was a real threat. And yeah, he's the person who called me in March of last year to let me know that this is all happening. Well, what a fantastic story and experience you've had. I thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Such a great conversation with Kevin. It really is such a victory for him and for his organization. And for all of us, knowing that a whistleblower's 45-minute call with uh, a new employee could turn into a United Nations ban on a very harmful use of mercury. I can't believe we stumbled upon this amazing story. So let's get into the news for the month of January 2023. This first story I read in the New York Times, and I loved reading it so much that I feel I have to put it in the podcast, although it's not going to be clear very soon why it is an environmental story. So in 2018, uh, a very famous coal executive in living in Montana, Larry Price Jr., was reported missing by his wife. Soon after, the businessman, Mr. Price, was found disheveled and immediately rushed to the hospital 
claiming that he had been abducted by an outlaw biker gang that drugged him and took him to the motorcycle shop that he owns and robbed him. Eventually, police found camera footage from the motorcycle shop showing that there was no robbery and Mr. Price was forced to change his story, claiming that the gang forced him to give coal train schedules for methamphetamine trafficking uh, by, by, by rail. But none of this actually happened. This was Mr. Price's last ditch attempt to escape an embezzlement scheme of more than $20 million that he had planned with the president of a Montana coal mine in the Blue Ridge Mountains. This embezzlement involving the coal company Signal Peak Energy also involved bribery, cocaine trafficking, environmental hazards, worker abuse, and even links to President Vladimir Putin. Now in 2023, nine former Signal Peak executives have been charged or convicted, and Mr. Price is in a federal prison. Former president of Signal Peak that I mentioned earlier that kind of hatched this plan with Mr. Price, his name's Brad Hansen, and he died in his home in Florida in 2020. The coal company was fined a million dollars, and this has a lot to do with the illegal dumping. Illegal dumping is essentially dumping hazardous materials anywhere on American soil when it's unreported. The illegal materials included chemicals and unprocessed soil that had metals like arsenic and lead in them. They, they dumped it in an abandoned section of the mine, but that's still very illegal. Now, let's get to the actual environmental part of this. A coalition of environmental groups have now petitioned the federal government and the state of Montana to close down the mine permanently because of environmental and permit violations. Despite this pressure, Signal Peak is planning on a 7,000-acre expansion of the mine, but federal courts have repeatedly blocked this for failure of Signal Peak to meet environmental standards. Pretty crazy story, but it's good to hear that those perpetrators are in prison and environmental groups are still putting pressure on the federal government to close down this lawless mine. The chair of the Federal Reserve, Jerome H. Powell, recently spoke at Sweden Central Bank announcing that the United States Federal Reserve would not be diving into issues like mitigating climate change. He argued that the Fed should retain its independence from politics. Democrats have been kind of pressuring Powell to take a more active role in policing climate change, and even Republicans have asked the Fed to work on guarding against climate-related risks to the financial system. But Mr. Powell said, this is a direct quote. Without explicit congressional legislation, it would be inappropriate for us to use our monetary policy or supervisory tools to promote a greener economy or to achieve other climate-based goals. We are not and will not be a climate policymaker. So the Fed is going to continue monitoring climate-related risks at financial institutions, but this is a pretty clear signal that that the Fed will not be taking an active role in climate politics. After a 
two-decade-old proposal to mine in Bristol Bay in Alaska. The Biden administration in January 2023 moved to block the development of the gold and copper mine there. The project called Pebble Project has been supported by some Alaskans and some native groups for economic reasons, but it's been opposed by some tribes around the Bay and especially environmentalists who say it would cause irreparable harm to the salmon population. The EPA made the final determination under the Clean Water Act actually, which bans the disposal of mine waste in Bristol Bay's watershed Streams in the watershed are extremely important for salmon breeding grounds, and this decision essentially safeguarded the long-term sustainability of the salmon fishery. This aligns very well with a campaign promise President Biden made to protect the fishery, which is worth almost $350 million and has enormous economic benefits for Alaska and Washington state. Alana Hurley is the executive director of United Tribes of Bristol Bay, and she's opposed the mine from the start. She, she called this a real moment of justice for us. And Michael Regan, the administrator of the EPA, said, we reviewed this decision with scientific and technical research, and we're committed to always making decisions based on people on the planet that are science-based. The idea that the United States is going to start imposing water cuts and, and by that I mean the federal government, is a concept almost unheard of in this country. But the Colorado River is shrinking, and seven states rely on that water. The Biden administration asked each of those states to come up with a plan by January 31st to voluntarily cut the amount of water they draw from the Colorado but it's February now and there are dangerous declines in water at Lake Mead and Lake Powell, which provide water and electricity for Arizona, Nevada, and Southern California. There's been drought, climate change, and population growth as well, which is exacerbating the issue of water declines across the region. A policy advocate at the Environmental Defense Fund, Kevin Moran, quoted, think of the Colorado River Basin as a slow-motion disaster. We're really at a moment of reckoning. And this moment of reckoning could result in the Department of the Interior, which manages flows of the river, impose the cuts. That would break with a long tradition of states determining how to share water in this country. The Biden administration proposed tightening limits on fine particulate matter, which is a deadly air pollutant that includes soot. It was the first time in more than a decade that the federal government cracks down on a contaminant responsible for thousands of premature deaths every year. The draft rule created by the Environmental Protection Agency would tighten the current limit, which has been in place since 2012, by 25%. Because of that human health risk of over 4,200 premature deaths annually, this decision is long overdue. And according to the EPA, could result in up to $43 billion in health and economic benefits by 2032. Of course, there's an environmental justice angle to this. Poor and minority communities are disproportionately exposed to soot 
and Regan quoted, our work to deliver clean, breathable air for everyone is a top priority at EPA, and this proposal will help ensure that all communities, especially the most vulnerable among us, are protected from exposure to harmful pollution. California this past month has experienced an enormous amount of rain and snow due to storm systems known as atmospheric rivers, but the the state is still in a drought. Unfortunately, one season of record amounts of rain is not going to reverse three years that have been the state's driest on record. It's going to be really hard for any single season to counteract multiple years of extreme drought. The powerful storms have started to refill reservoirs and snowpack in the Sierra Nevada, which is very good. And if reservoir levels continue to go above average levels, it could alleviate deficits that have accumulated over consecutive extreme drought years. But the state's strategy for capturing water during wet periods like now and reserving it for dry periods is not feasible as climate change progresses and extremes get more extreme. This storm is not a good thing. I know that we've all probably seen on the news that it's caused the deaths of, I think, two dozen people and has resulted in an enormous amount of infrastructure damage. And at the same time, it doesn't even solve the issue of drought in the state. But of course, a California State Water Project manager, Molly White, said it, quote, helps the overall drought picture. For our last piece of news, I am so excited to talk about this because I know on a previous episode I had Elsa on to talk about her work to preserve the Boundary Waters Wilderness. The Biden administration said it will establish a 20-year moratorium on mining upstream from Minnesota's Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. Congratulations to her. I'm hoping we'll get to talk more about this and really dive into the story in a later episode. For now, all you need to know is that Deb Holland, the Secretary of the Interior Department, signed the moratorium into effect, and she said this statement came after scientific review as well as discussions with local and tribal groups, and concluded that mining would run the risk of causing irreparable harm to, one, the Rainy River watershed, two, hunting and fishing rights held by the Chippewa tribes, and three, an environment that has created $540 million in annual outdoor tourism. Elsa is actually a part of that industry. She helps run a dog sledding company in Ely, Minnesota. The moratorium is so important because a company known as Twin Metals Minnesota LLC was trying to build an underground mine in Ely near the wilderness area, and the Biden administration had previously canceled the company's mineral rights leases, but now with the moratorium, the project is unlikely to be revived. Of course, there probably will be legal action taken by the company But for now, this is a huge victory for Minnesota and for the Boundary Waters. So I, in the last week, decided that I'm done buying new clothes. 
I'd made a commitment to stop buying fast fashion for probably a year. And recently I've just been thinking about that next step of just deciding I'm never going to buy new clothing again, except for swimsuits, bras, underwear, socks. So for this sustainability tip, I ask you to do this with me. You don't have to decide I'm never going to buy new clothes again, but make a commitment that you're going to be mindful and really think about clothing that you are that you are purchasing because what you decide to buy directly influences labor violations, environmental rights abuses. So here are some tips. Try shopping secondhand first. Go to a thrift store, go to a pop-up, and just see if you find anything you like. It's actually very fun and exciting to find something you like among the hordes of clothing. You can buy fewer clothes, a few valuable things that you really enjoy wearing. Instead of buying a mountain of clothing and hoping that you like a few things in the long term, really think through what you like and what you'll wear. Shop locally. If you buy from local designers and local boutiques, you're more often than not buying from more sustainable sources. Buying clothes locally reduces carbon emissions from shipping internationally and also supports your local economy. Go natural. Natural clothing, as opposed to synthetic fabric, is like cotton, linen, bamboo, flax, silk, wool, alpaca. When you buy these fabrics, you're reducing the amount of microplastics in rivers and oceans that come from synthetic fibers that get into our water system when you wash them. If you buy organic, you'll play a part in reducing the amount of pesticides and herbicides used when growing cotton and other organic fabrics. Finally, shop sustainable brands. I know no one wants to look up their favorite brand and find that they've been accused of child labor abuses in Bangladesh, but if you really want to make the step to be more sustainable and do your part in the world, give back more than you've taken, just do the research and make conscious choices. All right, that's all I have for today. Thank you all so much for listening. I love doing this and I want to hear from you. What have you been thinking about the podcast? Please reach out to me or anyone on the team. We're, we're really excited to hear how people have been liking FFC. Again, thank you so much and have a really great month of February.